The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Today's scripture reading comes from Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. If you are using the Black Bibles in front of you, it is on page 926. And when you're ready, would you stand as I read God's word? Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time, and let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, yes, why don't you uh, keep your Bibles open there. Again, highly encourage you to uh, have your copy of Scripture open. Turned to Paul's letter to those Christians in the town of Colossae. That's why the book is called the Colossians. It's his letter to those believers there. We're in chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 2 through 6. And today we're wrapping up our little five-part sermon series called Everyday Disciples. This morning we're looking at this fifth gospel-shaped identity. And it's that gospel-shaped identity of being a witness. And so our sermon title this morning is this, that I am a witness. If you are in Christ, that is, if you have been saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible very clearly says there's something new about you. It's that 2 Corinthians 5 idea that you are now a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. And so we've been looking at what the Bible tells us to be true about us as men, as women, who are followers of Jesus. In the Lord Jesus Christ, one of those gospel-shaped identities is I am a witness. The main idea that's going to hang over our text this morning comes down to this. What is a witness? A witness is someone who proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ with their words in everyday life. A witness is someone who proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ, not only with their actions, we're going to talk about this here in a minute, those other four gospel-shaped identities. There is a way to intentionally confess Jesus with our actions by living out those gospel-shaped identities. But what we also see is that the way the Bible describes us as followers of Jesus is this witness identity means there will come a time where we use words to intentionally confess Jesus in everyday life. So we're going to pause, we're going to pray, and I'm going to do what we normally do. I'm going to hold up for a minute just to give you an opportunity to pray, uh, namely for yourself. A lot of life has happened since we've last gathered. Six days, 22 hours have come and they have gone. For some of us, it's been highs. For some of us, it's been lows. For some of us, we're here today and church is old hat. Gathering with the saints on Sunday morning is just something we do. For some of us, we're here this morning. It's like it's been a while. It's brand new. 
And we all walk in through this door having experienced a lot of life. And for some of us, maybe that life that we've experienced is just clouding our hearts, clouding our minds, clouding our ears, clouding our eyes from seeing Jesus clearly right now. Maybe you've sinned against someone else. Maybe they've sinned against you, and it's just brought you to the place. You're like, man, I'm just having trouble seeing Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, go run, clean yourself up, and come back and talk to me once you're a little bit more squeakier, a little bit more cleaner. Jesus is in the business of meeting the sinners and the sufferers exactly where they're at. Amen? That's good. So right now, you get to meet with Jesus, and I'm giving you that opportunity. I want you to take 15, 20 seconds and pray. Just ask Jesus, like, will you help me to see you, hear you, know you, fall in love with you that much more as a result of our time spent worshiping through the preaching of the word, okay? I'm going to give you a couple of seconds to do that, and then I'm going to pray over us, and then we're going to dive into the text this morning and see what the Lord God has for us today, amen? All right, so our encouragement is for you to take a couple of minutes and just pray. Ask Jesus to help you see him. What can wash away my sin? What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. King Jesus, thank you for doing on the cross what had to be done in order for us to know the salvation we need. Jesus, your King, Jesus, you are Savior. Jesus, you are Lord. You are God. You're also gracious. You're merciful. And you are kind. Jesus, we plead that you would help, that you would hear our prayers for help to come and meet us in this moment to help us see you Give us ears to hear. Open our minds to understand the words being preached this morning so that through the declaration of God's word, we could say, we met Jesus today and my life is not the same as a result. Holy Spirit, do this for the glory of our Lord our King and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. As we wrap up our series this morning, looking at this gospel-shaped identity of being a witness, what I want you to do is just hear this to maybe help those of us who are struggling, having heard the various identities that we've been talking about. Remember, we've been talking about that in Christ we are worshipers, that we are in the family of God now. We've been adopted into God's household. That's the Bible 
way of talking about salvation. We are now servants and we are now followers. And for a lot of us, my guess is that through any of those four gospel-shaped identities, there's just measures of our hearts being exposed to what that means for us from the scriptures. And we say this like, man, I'm struggling. I don't know that I'm flourishing in these areas. <laughs> Thriving is, seems so distant like, I'm not even revived. Like, I'm barely hanging on by a thumbnail in regard to these things. Like, I am barely surviving. Like, I'm not at the end of my rope in regard to some of these things. Like, the rope is unraveled. There is, like, one string hanging off the unraveled rope. And, like, I'm down there clinging on to, like, the very thread of the string of the unraveled end of the rope. Like, that's probably where I'm at in regard to some of these things. If this is you this morning, I just want you to hear this, that it is possible for you to thrive as an everyday disciple who intentionally confesses Jesus in everyday life. And it's not because you can bootstrap yourself into thriving. It's not because you can white knuckle yourself into this place, just bite the bullet, grin, and bear it. If you find yourself at the end of the rope, unraveled string, and I'm barely clinging on to the end of the rope, it is in that place that typically our soul comes to the realization that, like, I need help. I need help. And it is in that place that when we come and openly declare, I need help, that you are on your journey to this truth that it is possible for you to thrive as an everyday disciple who intentionally confesses Jesus in everyday life. It is possible for you to thrive not because you can do it in and of yourself, but because in the lack that you know and experience, who do you run to? You want run to the one who can help you thrive. The one who likes, loves, delights, smiles at the prospect of stooping low to meet sinners and sufferers exactly where they are. And it is in that place that you begin to experience the realities of what it looks like to thrive as an everyday disciple who intentionally confesses Jesus in everyday life. Now, I want to zoom in on two words inside that phrase, that sentence there, and it's the recognizing that the heart of that phrase goes to this idea, the intentional confession aspect of that thriving. Because of who you are in Christ as an everyday disciple, your calling is to intentionally confess Jesus in everyday life. In other words, what we're saying with this idea of confessing Jesus in everyday life doesn't mean that like every second of every minute of every hour of every day of every week of every month of every year, like the only words coming out of your mouth are nothing but Jesus. That's, that's not what we're driving at here. But it is coming at this idea where we begin to recognize that no area of our lives are out of bounds when it comes to confessing Jesus. All of us are tempted to compartmentalize Jesus. Jesus, you got me for two hours on a Sunday. The next six days and 22 hours are mine. Thank you very much. King me rules then. King Jesus rules now. King Jesus, his time is done at 12 p.m. on a Sunday. The invitation of this sermon series has begun to see that these gospel-shaped identities, they 
walk in the door with us through church, so to speak, on Sunday morning, but they also walk right out that door into the next six days in 22 hours. There are no areas out of bounds when it comes to confessing Jesus. Your gospel-shaped identities gather with you on Sunday, and they scatter with you right out the door into work, into family, into home, into parenting, into marriage, into relationships, into neighborhoods, the places you live, the places you recreate, whatever it might be. Who you are in Christ goes with you into every one of those areas. So, for instance, as a worshiper, we have said, in Christ I am a worshiper. As a worshiper, you intentionally confess Jesus when you gather on a Sunday morning and then when you scatter out into the rest of your week, when your life reverberates with a gospel-shaped liturgy, you intentionally confess Jesus in everyday life. As a family, remember, in Christ you've been folded into the family of God. You've been adopted in. Jesus is your older brother. You've got now Jesus brothers, Jesus sisters. So you're part of a local Jesus family. If you just look around, that's who you're sitting with here on a, on a Sunday morning. But your adoption also travels with you out and about where people begin to look and go, yeah, that guy at work, like I, he just talks different. He seems to be part of a different family. What, what family are you part of? Part of a Jesus family family. In those moments, you're intentionally confessing Jesus. As a servant, you can intentionally confess Jesus when you serve one another like you've been served by the servant Savior, Jesus. And that's not just a Sunday morning reality. When you go out into life and moms are serving kiddos and husbands are serving wives, and when you're serving your neighbor, when you're serving your co-workers, all with the aroma of Christ, guess what? You are intentionally confessing Jesus. And then last week, we said this, that as a follower, you can intentionally confess Jesus in everyday life when you abide in him, when you obey him. When people see you doing, not doing, speaking, not speaking, saying, not saying, believing, not believing. Why? I follow a king. He is my Lord. And my delight is to walk in obedience to him. You confess Jesus in those moments. You see, the plain truth is that everyday life is ripe with opportunity for intentional confession, isn't it? Everyday life, ripe with opportunity. Some of this sermon series aim has been to tear down the idea that like, I'm only in Jesus mode for two hours on a Sunday. And it's to see that no matter where you go, it's that phrase that we were praying for during the family prayer time of intentional, not additional. It's just to recognize that as I go like Jesus, wherever I go throughout the week, I am bringing Christ with me, so to speak. Your heart of worship, your family heritage, your acts of service, your Christ-abiding, obedient followership, all of these are legitimate forms of intentionally confessing Jesus in everyday life, and we need to be careful not to delegitimize them. Because the danger is someone gets up and says, well, you're not really confessing Jesus if you're never speaking about Jesus. 
And the temptation is to then say, yeah, all these gospel-shaped identities, worshiper, family, follower, servant, like they're sort of like JV squad gospel-shaped identities. The real varsity squad one is the witness identity. And unless Jesus has fallen out of your mouth every single second of every hour of every day and work, then you're like somehow like you're just not like, you know, you're maybe like a one-level Christian. We need 10-level Christians. And unless you start talking more about Jesus, you ain't going to be 10, you're at one. That's, we don't want to delegitimize these gospel-shaped identities. But also what we must not forget is that this last gospel-shaped identity of being a witness, it does mean something. And it's not like we've got four and then we've got one and they live in different categories. All five of them come together and they give us a very robust understanding of what it means to be an everyday disciple. Remember our definition. A witness is someone who proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ with their words. And it's this witness identity which brings biblical balance to the everyday disciple. It's this witness identity that is meant to be laid on the table so that as the five identities are all on the table equally, we realize that they all go back and forth and they all inform one another. What do I mean by this? So for some of us here, you might find it very easy to intentionally confess Jesus with your words. There's some of us that have the gift of gab. And talking about Jesus is no problem. We can open up and stuff will come out and we will burn people's ears off by talking about Jesus all day long, every day. It's just easy to us, very natural. We're wired that way. But what you need to know is that while you're sitting here talking about Jesus, your other four gospel-shaped identities are suffering. So for instance, your servant identity, you go to work and you are the Jesus guy. You're always talking about Jesus. Your witness identity is at level 10. Your servant identity is at level one. So you are known at work as the self-servant, maybe willing to serve someone else. If you get something out of it, you're a selective servant and people are having trouble meshing together the reality. This dude's always talking about Jesus, but he don't serve like Jesus. Do you see the disconnect there? So we intentionally confess Jesus with our servant identity, but we also intentionally confess Jesus with our words. For others of us, it's completely flipped. You're like, dude, you're asking me to open my mouth and talk about Jesus? That freaks me out. I think most of us are probably more in that category. You find it easier to intentionally confess Jesus with your actions as a worshiper, as a family member in the household of God, a servant, a follower of Jesus, but you need to know that while actions speak... Actions speak. They speak without words, but the Bible says there does come a time when an everyday disciple must speak the gospel of Jesus Christ by using their words with their mouth. And these aren't enemies against one another. The scriptures say that the beautiful relationship between these five gospel-shaped identities are just like facets on a diamond. The diamond of who we are in Christ. You see, what Paul is going to say here in these verses out of Colossians 4 is that gospel declaration with words is a must. Gospel declaration with words is a must. You're going to notice that two different times he uses this word ought. Here's how I ought to speak. Here's how you ought to answer. There's this oughtness, this mustness to opening our mouth and using words to let others know about Jesus. Paul knows about this 
oughtness, that's mustness, as he's riding from prison, he says. He is in prison right now. And as a result of declaring the mystery of Christ, that's why he's in prison. He's writing to these group of Christians that he's never met before. That's the context to the book of Colossians. There are people that know about Jesus because someone else heard about Jesus, a man named Epaphras. Paul shared the gospel with Epaphras. Epaphras said, man, I've got people in my hometown who need to hear about this. And he went back and he began to share the gospel. And now there's a whole group of Christians in a town that Paul has never, deli- uh, never visited He's never seen before, and so he takes up a pen and paper while he's in prison. He says, I'm going to write and encourage these people, and this is what he begins to say. He begins to close out his letter. We're on the back end of his letter. He's closing out his letter of encouragement to these Colossian believers, and he does so with the necessity of speaking, specifically speaking the gospel with our words. And according to these couple of verses before us this morning, Everyday disciples are witnesses who speak in two different ways. Point number one is this. A witness speaks to God about people. A witness first speaks to God about people. So in your Bible, look at verse 2, Colossians chapter 4. Look at what Paul writes. He begins with this encouragement. Continue steadfastly in prayer. One way to describe prayer is I'm going to speak to God right now. That's a simple definition for prayer. I'm going to speak to God right now. I want you to continue steadfastly. You could then say in this call to speak to God, I want you to be watchful in it with this heart of thanksgiving. So notice that when it comes to being a witness, Paul first establishes our need to speak to God. Sometimes we get ahead of ourselves by saying people need to know about Jesus, so we go blowing out the door and we start to tell people about God without first talking to God about people in prayer. He's giving us our marching orders, so to speak. What we want to be are people who first recognize that if I'm going to bear witness for Jesus in everyday life, the pre-step is for me to go first, talk to God, pray to Him, spend time with Him, praying for others. That is step number one, you could say. So notice what Paul says here in verse 2. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer. What does that mean? It means to persevere in prayer. Prayer is work, isn't it? Any Christians here who can see, see prayer as work? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a labor. Continue steadfastly in it, persevere. To persevere in prayer is to say, I'm going to devote myself to this task with God-empowered tenacity. I'm going to be tenacious in this thing, and I need God to help me to be tenacious. But notice Paul also says prayer is to be watchful, and it's to be marked by thanksgiving, gratitude. Prayer is to have this consistent alertness, this watchfulness that's brimming full of gratitude. Gratitude for what? Gratitude for God. Gratitude for all that he has done. Gratitude for God's absolute ability to do what he can do because he is sovereign over all things. And so it's this hard attitude. I'm so thankful that God hears my prayers. I'm so thankful that God delights to answer my prayers. I'm so thankful that I can bring my prayers to him. And because that's true, I want to be watchful and diligent and to continue steadfastly in speaking to God 
in prayer. So this, Paul says, guys, I know we've never met before, but here's how I want to encourage you. I want you to know this is how you're to pray. I want you to pray steadfastly. I want you to pray continually. How else? Watchfully. How else? Thankfully. This is how I want you to pray. But then notice Paul rolls right into verse 3, and he says, now that you know how to pray, let me give you an encouragement for what you can pray. And that's what we see starting in verse 3. Notice that Paul then shows what disciples to pray. And he says in verse 3, what you to pray for is to pray for God-given opportunity. You see that in verse 3. Guys, continue steadfastly in prayer along these lines. At the same time, pray for us. How? What do you want us to pray for, Paul? That God may open to us a door for the word so that I might declare the mystery of Christ. So do you see what he's doing? He's like, I'm going to go out and talk to people about God. I'm going to go and declare the mystery of Christ to them. I want them to know about Christ. I want them to know about his death, his burial, his resurrection. I want them to hear this. I want them to believe it. But before I go out and declare the mystery of Christ, I need you to first talk to God so that as you're talking to God, you're asking him to open up doors of opportunity for me to be able to go and do this. Notice that a key component then to being a witness is the necessary prayer that first speaks to God. And when that conviction begins to just settle into your soul like a, like a concrete foundation of a house, like it's just solidified, it's the thing on which I'm going to build my house, like your life begins to change. Church life begins to change. Your personal life begins to change. There's a reason why we take time to do what we do during the Jesus family prayer time. We're making that a priority because of verses like this verse in front of us. We're setting aside time on the first Sunday of each month to take 30 minutes before service because of verses like this. We need, we're going to London. We're praying beforehand because we don't want to be guilty of assuming that we can just go talk to people about God and people are just going to repent and believe because, I mean, I was there after all and I'm a really good speaker and I know how to use words and I can really present a convincing argument. Paul's like, no, 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 no. Go with the hard attitude of... We went dependent on God making opportunities open so that people would hear the word, repent, and believe concerning King Jesus. Paul grasps his need. So instead of him barging forward in self-dependence upon his skill, his eloquence, his theological knowledge, notice he calls for the intercessory support of other believers. Now, Paul believes God is sovereign over all circumstances, but Paul also knows that in God's economy, the Father delights to make a way for the mystery of Christ to be declared by using the continual prayer of everyday disciples as a means to fulfill only what he can do. God delights to use your prayers to see his gospel speed forward in your places of work, in your own homes, in our local field, our neighborhood? How will people come to repent and believe in the gospel? Missionaries need to be sent and they need to go, 
But as they go, they're riding on the waves of the intercessory prayer of the saints who are plowing the fields, the gospel fields around us, so to speak, with prayer. Tilling up the soil, turning it over. You're the Lord of the harvest, Lord, the soil of people's hearts. Will you go forward and turn it over? Will you till it over? Will you make it fresh? So that when the missionary, the everyday disciple, shows up and says, can I pray for you? Like, I think it's genuine to care for someone by praying for them. Have you ever considered Jesus? Has anyone ever showed you how to read the Bible? Would you like to read the Bible? Do you want to pick one chapter about Jesus from the Gospels and just read it to see what, what and who Jesus is? Have you ever considered what it means for you to be a follower of Jesus? Has anyone ever showed you how to pray? And in all these ways, we're showing gospel or um, sowing gospel seeds with the hope that they're landing on hearts, to use a metaphor, that have been tilled and made fresh through the plow of prayer going forward. Are you guys tracking with me here? Okay. Paul grasps this. This is stunning because the mystery of Christ which is the revelation of what God has accomplished through His Son for the forgiveness of our sin. Paul says it is now out in the open. There is no second guessing. It is plain and clear that God's plan A for men and women to be redeemed, to find eternal life, to have their sins genuinely forgiven before and by a holy God, it is rooted and grounded in plan A from the beginning, and that is Jesus Christ. It is as plain as the noonday sun, and I want people to know this. Therefore, Paul says, pray. It feels so counterintuitive, doesn't it? You think you'd say, now sit down, go to a conference, develop a 10-step strategy plan. Let's get all the big cream of the crop leaders. Let's get them down here. Let's get some conferences going. Let's set up networks. Let's start, let's start getting this thing going here. He says, no, 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 no. Pray. Pray to a sovereign God who is sovereign over all circumstances and ask, beg, intercede, plead that doors of opportunity would open up in people's lives so that as we go we'll see those doors of opportunity and not pass them by but see those doors of opportunity and seize those opportunities this is the first item in prayer the second is pray for gospel clarity so paul is saying guys as you are plowing in prayer, so to speak. I need you. This is what I need you to pray for. I need you to pray for God-given opportunity. Verse 3, verse 4, here's what else I need you to pray for. I need you to pray for gospel clarity. That is verse 4. Pray for gospel clarity. Pray that I may make it clear, he says. What is it? The it is the mystery of Christ that I'm declaring. I want to declare it. I want to share Jesus. I want others to hear and know about Jesus. But I also want to do it in a clear way. I don't want that person to hear me walk away saying, what in the world? What? 
Like, that's about as clear as mud is what that is. He's like, no, I want people, I want it to land on people's hearts and minds where they can say this, I don't know much about this, but I do understand what was just explained to me in this moment. He says, there's something supernatural about that. Ephesians 6 tells us the schemes of the enemy are at work in the hearts and minds. 2 Corinthians 4 says the Satan, the prince of the power of the air, he loves to blind eyes so that people don't see clearly. We counter the schemes of the enemy by asking God, would you make my speech clear as I ought to speak? This is how I ought to speak. So notice there is this oughtness to clear gospel speech. It is something we ought to do. Speaking the gospel is no time for vague concepts. It's no time for this ambiguous language to be on our lips. Hearts and minds need to be engaged by the truth of Christ clearly. Therefore, this reality, this need, results in a prayer request from Paul that you pray for me that we would speak clearly. It would be the same for the London team. When we go to London here in a couple of weeks, we're going to be sharing the gospel with university students in the downtown London area, and we're going to be going door to door, much like we are here, working the soil, so to speak, for a church plant that is seeking to be planted in a neighborhood. In those moments, those are the moments for what? Gospel clarity. And so it's like, pray for us, please. And the reality is we pray for this because when God gives us open doors of opportunity to speak the gospel in those moments, the temptation can be to blunt the gospel's edge with unclear speech. The gospel is like the doctor's scalpel, is it not? Very, very sharp. You don't have to be uh, very prickly at work. You just got to talk, talk gospel, and it will begin to lay people's hearts open like the exactness, the precision of a, of a surgeon's scalpel. It will slice open the heart and expose things in people's minds and what they believe and how they're living. You don't have to be prickly yourself. It can, it'll just happen through the preaching of the word. Some of us have been in places where we knew that if we were very clear with our speech concerning the realities of the gospel, this conversation is not going to go the way that I want it to go. And so what we do is we begin to soft pedal, we begin to back pedal, and instead of the surgeon's scalpel, what we do is we turn the gospel less into less of a surgeon's scalpel and more into a butter knife. Blunt, 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 blunt. So that way we just try to make the gospel not cut so deep in people's lives. That's a temptation. Has anyone ever been tempted to do that here before? My hand is up, not as an example to give you to get your hand up. My hand is up because I've been there before. We want to soften hard truths that God is holy, and we want to soften hard truths that man is utterly sinful. We want to soften the hard truth that unless you repent of your sins and unless you turn to Jesus Christ and believe in him alone for eternal life, you will fall into the hands of him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The temptation is to blunt those gospel truths with 
unclarity. Because we, we know if we give it clear, it's going to be like the surgeon's knife and it's going to cut deep and that might ruin the relationship or that might make my boss angry at me or fill in the blank in any other way. But Paul says this is not how we ought to speak. Rather, we must pray, asking God to open our mouths with clarity so that when we speak about Jesus, we would have the right words at the right time. So an everyday disciple is a witness who speaks. And we must first go vertical, speaking to God about people And only once that has happened, Paul says, then we go horizontal. We go out speaking to people about God. And that is what we see in point number two. In verses five and six, point number two is a witness speaks to people about God. So I want people to know about salvation in Christ. First, speaking to the Father vertically. Lord, open doors of opportunity. Lord, grant clear speech. Lord, empower me to walk in continual, steadfast, watchful, thankful prayer because the time is coming when the door of opportunity comes and I want to be a faithful witness to be able to walk through that door as I speak to people about you. My hope is not in me in that moment, but my hope is in that God has heard the prayer and he's gone before me, okay? So notice how Paul comes at this in verse 5 and 6. Walk in wisdom, he says, toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech, there it is, this talking, let your speech always be gracious. Let your speech be seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So there's the speaking to people about God idea. Intentionally confessing Jesus in everyday life isn't just praying for God-given opportunity. It begins with that. But it's also then seizing those opportunities when they come because God is faithful and he hears our prayers. If it's, Lord, give me opportunity, give me opportunity, please, I'm begging you, give me opportunity. You better be prepared because God's going to give you opportunity. And so when those opportunities begin to roll in, in your home, with your kids, between spouses, between the neighbor, the coworker, the guy you work out with, whatever it might be, It's seizing those opportunities when they come. We are to walk in wisdom toward outsiders. The word outsiders there, it's not a derogatory term. It's just simply a Bible way where the Bible identifies those who are outside of Christ versus those who are trusting in Christ. Paul's point is that we are to exercise wisdom when we speak to others about God. Be wise in these things, he says. Wisdom requires that we be discerning as to when we speak to whom we speak. But the expectation is that we speak. And when the time comes to speak the gospel, our speech is to always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that we may know how we ought to answer each person. Really, I think what Paul's encouraging us here in these final two verses of our text this morning is this. Is this he's calling us to learn how to strike that delicate balance between true content and genuine care. You understand what I'm saying there? True content and genuine care. There's a, there's, a, there's a fine balance there. 
right? So we don't want to be guilty of weaponizing our words at the expense of genuine care, but we also don't want to be guilty of overstressing care at the expense of never speaking gospel truth. So some of us know what weaponizing our words at the expense of genuine care is about. If you grew up in the South, you know what this category of life is. If you've ever heard someone say something to you, followed up with a, bless your heart. Dan, that is one of the ugliest shirts I've ever seen in my entire life. Bless your heart. It's like, well, I guess that's true. But like, did you just insult me, right? It's just like somehow the bless your heart covers a multitude of sins in that moment, right? But it's like, I'm pretty sure you just said my shirt was ugly. Or we've had this conversation with our kiddos and with others. Like, if your opening gambit is, no offense, Charles, but that is the dumbest hat I've ever seen in my entire life. It's like, well, you probably shouldn't have followed up the phrase with the fact that you had to lead off with no offense but. You know your words are bound to be offensive. That's why you're saying, don't take offense at my offensive words that I know that I'm about to offend you with. That's weaponizing words at the expense of genuine care. The other side of the, the coin is this, just overstressing care, overemphasizing care, uh, with never desiring to speak gospel truth. What some of you ladies are going to discover that one of the best, I think, illustrations that are found in one of those books you're going to be studying by Gina Healy called Honest Evangelism. The author, Rico Tice, talks about crossing the pain line when it comes to talking about Jesus. Like every one of us know right now, like the tension you're feeling is, yeah, but John, if I take advantage of the opportunity to bear witness to Jesus at work or with my boss, there's a pain line there, and I don't know what's on the other side of the pain line. I might cross that pain line, and I might get smacked by my boss verbally, emotionally. My relationships might suffer. Actually, John, I have crossed the pain line. I have been smacked. I don't like getting relationally smacked, emotionally smacked. So I'm going to step on back to the other side of the pain line and then make sure I get a good mile distance between me and the pain line and I ain't never going to cross that line again. I'll be very happy to use my words to speak genuine care, but when the door of opportunity comes, I will not speak gospel truth because I don't want to be smacked by crossing the pain line. Now, God can mature us in these things, and as he does so, we will find ourselves making the best use of the time. I think a good way to unpack what Paul means there by making the best use of the time is this, remembering that empowered by God, we can, we will become foresight Christians instead of hindsight Christians. So many times in my life, I feel like I've been living a hindsight Christian kind of life, right? Door of opportunity, it looks like it's coming, looks like it's coming, looks like it's coming, it's here, it's here, it's here, there it goes, it's in the rearview mirror, it's in the rearview mirror, rearview mirror, and I lay my head down and I go, ah, that thing back then when that conversation was going on, like that was the moment, that was the door of opportunity, then you wake up the next day, opportunity coming, 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 it's here, it's here, it's here, it's here, and then it's gone, it's gone, and you're like, ah, there it was again. That's, the, that's hindsight mentality. I think what Paul is just saying, that empowered by God the Spirit, it is possible to mature from hindsight Christian living to foresight Christian living to where we see, oh, it's coming. I've been praying for it. It's coming. It's coming. It's here. It's here. You step through the door. Speak a word for Christ. Pray in the name of Jesus. 
live out one of your gospel-shaped identities in that moment with the opportunity to share, shine, show, leave the aroma of Christ in that moment. So instead of missing opportunities, foresight Christianity says seize those God-given opportunities. So let's wrap this up with some practical handles here. Remember, a witness is someone who proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ with their words in everyday life. And what's beautiful about this gospel-shaped identity is that you are simply testifying to what you have seen. After all, like that, that's just what a witness is. If you witnessed a crime and you get subpoenaed and you go to the courtroom and they set you up in front of everybody, what is your job as a witness? Your job as a witness is to say, I was there, I saw it, and I heard it, and I'm just telling you what I saw I'm just telling you what I heard. Every one of us would go, that man, that woman served as an excellent witness in that court of law. Gospel-shaped identity of witness, I'm arguing, is like the exact same. You are simply testifying to what you have seen. So for anyone saved by grace through faith in Christ here this morning, what is true about you is you have tasted God's mercy and you have tasted God's forgiveness. You've tasted his power to save sinners. What you have seen in your own life and what you've seen in the life of others is you've seen spiritual death get raised into spiritual life. You've seen spiritual darkness turn to spiritual light. You've seen spiritual blinded eyes opened and turned into full sight all because of Jesus. You've seen the extraordinary power of the gospel in the words of the psalmist, Psalm 34, 8. You have tasted, you have seen that the Lord is good. And now when the opportunity comes, you're just like, can I tell you what I've seen? I don't know much, but I have seen Jesus change me in this way. Do you have a story like that? I've tasted the goodness of a living God in my life in tangible and real ways. Do you have a story like that? Therefore, being a witness, like don't psych yourself out and make this any harder than it has to be. Right, some of us are like, I need to go read books and put a thousand tools, and I need to go out. And I'm like, no, no, you just need to go to work tomorrow, begging the Father to give you a door of opportunity to just when the opportunity comes, your eyes, like, you know, the, the witness radar is firing and going off. You're like, now's the time, now's the time. And you're just like, open mouth, bear witness to what you've tasted and seen concerning Jesus. This is what witnesses do. So how can you grow in this gospel-shaped identity? I think you can just simply grow by asking and wrestling with the question, how is my witness? How is my witness? How is my witness? Good, evaluative question. You can find yourself in one of three possible places. Either you're apathetic, either you're embarrassed, or you're unashamed. Three possible answers, three possible places, how is my witness? Maybe it's this question asking, am I apathetic concerning this gospel-shaped identity? How can you tell if you're apathetic? You know you're apathetic if there's just no compassion for the lost. There's no motivation to share the gospel whatsoever. Like you really, like what's the definition of apathy? Like you just really do not care at all. Like truly don't care. 
The plight of sin-dead sinners at best causes you to stifle a yawn. At worst, it just never crosses your mind. Now, this might be you this morning. And if this is you this morning, Jesus is not only calling you to see how your apathy reveals an incredible disconnect with the good news you say you believe, but to also come and ask Jesus to revive your heart to match his heart for those who are lost and far from God. That's how we fight apathy. Or maybe it's asking the question, well, am I embarrassed? So you're like, okay, if, 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 if that's apathy, like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not there. Your compassion for the lost is present, but your compassion for the lost is overshadowed by your fear of rejection. Like, man, if I open mouth, cross pain line, and just bear witness to Jesus in this moment, man, there might be a whole heap of rejection on the other side. You want sin-dead sinners to be saved, but you're crippled by the fear of man. You're crippled by the fear of confessing Jesus because people will know in that moment where your flag is planted. <laughs> it's planted on the hill of King Jesus. There won't be no going back from it. And it's easier to let people maybe guess where I stand by just keeping my mouth shut instead of opening my mouth and removing any doubt as to where my allegiance lies, like we talked about last week, and counting the cost with the follower identity. So maybe you're like, yeah, not apathetic, but man, I have to be honest. Uh, I am embarrassed. And if this is you, then what can you do? Remember what he said back in verse 2? Pray. Ask Jesus to help you see how he's made you an ambassador of grace. Ask for the Holy Spirit to empower your intentional witness for Christ. Ask the Lord God to give you uncompromising boldness. Ask him to move you from being embarrassed to being unashamed. And that's the last question you can ask. Am I unashamed? If so, the gospel is broken through to give you compassion. It's broken through to give you boldness. I'm not saying that you never struggle with it. I'm not saying maybe it doesn't come in highs and lows and waves and this sort of thing. But as you mature as a follower of Jesus, I think one of the beautiful things that just becomes more concrete is this. Like, man, I'm just a follower of Jesus and there ain't no shame in that. Like, I'm not ashamed of the fact that people know I love King Jesus. I follow King Jesus. I serve others in the name of King Jesus. I worship King Jesus. I have a God and I submit to him and I'm walking in obedience to him. Like, I just don't know that I care anymore. And that's not, that's not meaning that you're, you're approaching it with like a really mean, hard attitude, but it's just that settled conclusion of the heart. I have a Savior and I don't care who knows about it. For some of us, that, that has happened in our lives. And you leave the aroma of Jesus wherever you go. You have come to the place where you're standing with the Apostle Paul and the many others who've counted the cost of proclaiming the gospel clarity by saying Romans 1.16 is me. I am unashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And I don't care who knows where I stand. Maybe this describes you this morning. If so, what you need to do is you might need to kill the monster of pride that's starting to rise up in your heart. And you need to recognize that the reason why I'm there is because King Jesus has done a work in me. If so, pray to God with thanksgiving. Thank you, Jesus, for working me in this way. 
Thank him for using you as a witness. Thank him for the joy of being able to speak to people about God. I am a witness. If you look on your seats around you, you'll see these two tools. We've printed this one off again. You guys have seen this from the very first week when we did this first sermon series. We printed them off again so you could grab one, so you could take it home, so you could stick it in the back of your Bible. The new tool that couples right up with it is this tool right here. We call this our identity wheel because it's in the shape of a wheel. And it's about our gospel-shaped identity. So we're not getting fancy here at Delta Church, y'all. All right? What's that? Yeah, bless your heart. There you go. That's exactly right. If you're wanting highbrow, you're not in the right church. I can point you to some other places in town, but you won't get it here. Identity wheel. The five identities we've been talking about, the definitions that we've been talking about with Bible verses that supplement and prove to where we've got them from. This is the new tool that we're putting in front of you. We call this the area of growth sheet. If you're like, man, I've got room to grow my gospel-shaped identities, this is the tool for you. Notice that the colors that match on here match on this sheet too. Ooh, ah, wow. Bless your heart, right? We're not getting fancy around here. So maybe it's this idea of you're looking over here on the area of growth sheet and you see the one that's titled witness like we just talked about today where being a gospel witness, maybe what you do is you begin to keep this in your Bible then as you're spending time with the Lord Jesus in the mornings, you just look at that first question. Did God provide an opportunity for you to share your faith with someone? How did you respond? Lord, an opportunity came, an opportunity went, and I was a little embarrassed in that moment. Like, will you grow me and mature me in that moment? What you need to know is that these questions that are on the area of growth sheet couple with this sheet here, and our argument at Delta till the day we die is that these two tools work themselves out the absolute best in a discipling group. What's a discipling group? A discipling group are little pods of twos and threes, women with women, men with men, where you can sit down and catechize yourselves in your gospel-shaped identities. We highly, highly encourage you to find those kinds of relationships. You're like, I need help finding that relationship. We have people, men's ministry leader, women's ministry leader, elders. We will help you find those relationships. Because here's what I can guarantee as we close out in prayer. If you've heard what we've been saying over the past five weeks and you say that sounds great, but then you aim at nothing as a result of these five weeks, guess what you're going to hit with bullseye accuracy for the remainder of your weeks going forward. If you aim at nothing, you're going to what? You're going to hit it. The next time we circle around to this, you'll be like, oh yeah, that whole gospel identity growth thing. But our desire is to see you grow and to mature so that we leave the aroma of Christ wherever we go. So let's pray for those things as we wrap up our sermon series. Lord Jesus, help us please. Would you steer us and would you guide us? Would you lead us to be honest with ourselves? Lead us to be honest with ourselves. Lead us to be honest in just thinking through the question, like where am I as a witness? I'm not saying these are the only three possibilities, but there are, I think, at least three. Apathetic, embarrassed, unashamed. Lord, would you just help us to like honestly evaluate where we're at? 
And then wherever we're at, make a beeline to you. To trust and rest in you. To grow us, to mature us, to look more like you. Lord, with all the gospel-shaped identities, would you just help us to see that our growth as an everyday disciple is not designed to be a solo event? Lord, would you help us to banish the thought that I can walk and live out a life pursuit of Jesus by myself? Would you kill that thought in our hearts and minds and fan into flame in its place the genuine conviction that I must walk with a fellow Jesus family member? I need it. I need it. Jesus, we're saying all these things not so that we can applaud ourselves or pat ourselves in the back, but so that we can genuinely taste and see you more, grow and increase into ever-deepening maturity in you more and more. God, would today be the day where you have sunk some deep truths in the hearts and minds of people who can then say in hindsight, they look back and go, man, that was a, a day, that was a week, that was a month where my life began to change as I submitted myself to God and he began to work and have his way in me. Jesus, do this for your name and for your glory, all these things. And God's people said, amen.